Hey friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our brief series in the book of Leviticus with James Jordan, and here he's going to be discussing what makes things clean and unclean in the Bible, as well as what those designations of clean and unclean mean. If you are in or near Birmingham, Alabama, we hope that you'll join us next week for our regional course on hope. And for more information, there's a link in the show notes. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing things that are clean and unclean in the book of Leviticus. This time we're going to look and survey Leviticus 11 through 16. These are the chapters that concern the animals that Israel was allowed to eat, laws concerning the defilement of childbirth, leprosy, issues of blood, and then the cleansing of the tabernacle every year on the Day of Atonement. And in order for us to understand this, we need to reflect, first of all, on what clean and unclean mean in the Bible. Because that's what these chapters have to do with. If a person gets into one condition or another, he's unclean, then he has to be cleansed, and after that, he's clean. What does it mean? Well, one suggestion in recent years has been that clean means whole or natural, and unclean means unnatural. It's unnatural for the human body to be covered with leprous sores. It is unnatural for children to be born with issues of blood along with them. It's unnatural for certain animals to behave in certain ways, and on the other hand, it's natural and ordinary for other animals. See, it's natural and wholesome and ordinary for fish to have fins and scales. But if an aquatic creature does not have fins and scales, then that's unnatural. Well, that's an attractive idea, and there may be something to it, but it doesn't get us very far, and it's not something that the Bible itself gives as a reason. Another thought would be that unclean simply means dirty, and since the dirt and ground is cursed in the Old Testament, cursed is the ground because of you, Genesis 3, verse 17, then to be dirty is to have the curse on you. And since the curse is death, then dust you are and to dust you shall return, then to have dirt on you is to have death on you, and that's what makes you unclean. Now that is much closer to the mark, and yet not all the things that we will find are unclean have to do with death per se. So what we will suggest here, and the best way to do it, is to look at the things that make you clean and unclean and then see what they all have in common or what they all relate to. And as we'll see, they're all related to the judgments pronounced in Genesis chapter 3 one way or another. The judgments pronounced in Genesis chapter 3 are uncleanness. And to be relieved from those judgments is to be made clean. In a very general kind of a way, then, unclean means under the curse or under the effects of the curse or under the effects of the fall. And to be cleansed is to be delivered from the effects of the curse or the curse or the fall. It's useful to remember this, that if the expression clean and unclean was exactly equivalent to anything else, then we wouldn't have these words. So they're not exactly the same as curse. They're not exactly the same as sin, that's for sure. They're not exactly the same as dirt or dirtiness. It's a category by itself, and it's kind of large and vague and broad, but we will see 
that it connects to the judgments of Genesis chapter 3. And we'll look at that in just a moment. Before doing so, let's get an outline of the literary structure of this passage. Look in your notebook at the chart for Leviticus 11 through 16, the covenant recreation chart. There are actually seven literary sections in this passage. The first in Leviticus 11 has to do with food laws, and as we'll see, that has basically to do with idolatry. And so that comes under the first section of the covenant, no other gods before me. Then Leviticus 12 will have to do with the defilement of childbearing, and childbearing has to do with restructuring. A new child comes into the world, you have a new arrangement in the world, a new hierarchy in the family. And so restructuring is the idea, and that's the second point of the covenant. Chapter 13 gives what it calls the law of the leper. And the third part of the covenant recreation model is the distribution of stipulations, the giving out of laws. And the leper is the man who has God's name in vain. His body has become vain, and he has to be put out of God's presence. He also is guilty of stealing from God in some sense, and so when he's cleansed, he has to bring a reparation offering. Then the next section in Leviticus 14 verses 1 to 32 has to do with cleansing the leper. And that, of course, is the sanctions section of the covenant recreation model. And then finally we have the last section which has to do with the succession of the covenant and the new administrators. And here we have three sections that deal with that. The leprous house, and that's introduced by the phrase when you enter into the land. So it looks to the future when you come into the land and when you do then the land itself can become defiled in your house, and the house may have to be torn down. That's an idea of succession, and that's why the law is placed there. And then you have in Leviticus 15 the defilement of issues, issues coming out from the private parts of the male or female, and that has to do again with succession. And then in Leviticus 16 you have the Day of Atonement, which is restoration, and again has to do with succession aspect of the covenant. So that explains the literary structure of the passage in one dimension, but there is a more powerful way of outlining this section and remembering it, and that is to think back to Genesis 3, which is a little bit more familiar. You might want to look at Genesis 3, and we'll go through this briefly, and then we'll be coming back to it as we go through Leviticus 11 through 15. But when God passed judgments, whom did he judge first, the man, the woman, or the serpent? Well, he judged the serpent. And what was the judgment on the serpent? Well, the judgment was, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The serpent would travel in the dirt. And we will find that unclean animals are those that travel in the dirt. There's a different rule for fish and birds, but the animals that are on the ground, what makes them unclean is that they travel in the dirt, like the serpent. Who's judged next? Well, the woman is judged, and what God says is, is, I will multiply your distress in childbearing. So the next section, Leviticus 12, has to do with the distress of childbearing and consequent uncleanness, you see. Uncleanness comes from that. And then God says to Adam that he would work by the sweat of his face and return to dust. And we will find that leprosy is a form of dusty sweat and signifies the corruption of man and thus is an explication of that curse. A curse is not on man but on the ground, but then the curse comes on to man through leprosy. Then, the next thing God does is he makes garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothes them. That's in verse 21. And we'll find in Leviticus 13, after it discusses the leprosy on men, then it discusses leprosy in garments. 
The next thing we read is that God cast the man and the woman out of the Garden of Eden. And the next thing we find in Leviticus is the leprous house. And if your house is leprous, then it gets torn down and you're cast out of it. Then finally, we find that the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. Reference to marital relations, and Leviticus chapter 15 has to do with the corruption of marital relations. You become unclean if you make love to your wife, and if there is any type of an issue from that part of the body. So, Leviticus 11 through 15 is a highly symbolic commentary on Genesis chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. What makes it different, of course, is the publication or the, the putting of the tabernacle in the midst and all the new laws and arrangements that have been set up. And so now, instead of saying, well, when the woman has problems in bearing her children and blood comes out along with the child and that's a reminder of the curse and that there's a judgment and there's suffering because of sin, it goes beyond that now. Now the woman is ceremonially unclean. She's not allowed to have any contact with any other human beings for seven days or 14 days. She's not allowed to come into the congregation and engage in any acts of worship for 40 days or 80 days. All these other things that are added on are reflexes of the placing of the tabernacle in the midst of the people. And as we've seen, all the law has changed because of the tabernacle and the priesthood. It's worth just enclosing this little section here on Genesis 3 to remember that when we saw in Leviticus 8, 9, and 10, we saw the creation of a new Adam and then a new fall there in the fire that Nadab and Abihu offered. And that, of course, does lead us in a literary way into these judgments now that are commented on in Leviticus 11 through 15. Without further ado, then, let's look at Leviticus chapter 11, unclean animals and abominable food. By way of introduction, let me comment, first of all, that it was all right to eat unclean animals before Moses. Genesis 9, verse 3, God said to Noah, you may eat any animal. Worth reading that. Every moving thing that's alive shall be food for you. I give it all to you. There's no way to get around that. The people who lived before Moses could eat anything they wanted. That included Abraham. Abraham could eat all the pork and all the dog and all the snails that he wanted. And, of course, with the coming of the New Testament, we can eat anything we want, too. It may not be the healthiest food in the world, but you can eat it. It's not ceremonially unclean anymore. Acts chapter 10 and 11, Peter saw the vision, and God said that he had declared all foods clean. The second introductory remark we need to make here, after we see that these laws only applied to the Mosaic period, the period of the tabernacle and the temple, between Mount Sinai and the crucifixion, the second thing we need to notice is that there's a difference between animals being unclean and being abominable. And that's what Leviticus 11 does. It says, you already basically know that some animals are clean and unclean. No one knew that. Noah took seven pairs of clean animals onto the ark and only one pair of unclean animals on the ark. So the distinction between clean and unclean animals was already known, but you could eat unclean ones. It didn't make any difference what you ate which category they were in. But now Leviticus 11 changes things and says, from now on you will regard unclean animals as detestable, that is, abominable, or you spit it out of your mouth. That's what detestable or abominable means. It means you want to spit it out of your mouth. And that's new. Verse 46 of Leviticus 11 says, This is the law regarding the animal and the bird and every living thing that moves in the waters, everything that swarms on the earth, to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, and between the edible creature and the creature that's not to be eaten. 
So it's a completely different question. Don't get confused in your mind, like most people are, that unclean means you aren't supposed to eat it. Not so. Unclean means it's unclean and has this judgment of God on it. It speaks of the judgment of God, the curse of God, in some particular way, as we'll see. But you can eat it if you want, under the Old Testament. Now, of course, it's no longer clean or unclean. Everything is clean. It was only after Moses that the unclean animals were not supposed to be eaten. Now, basically, what do the unclean animals picture? Well, basically, they picture idolatry. Genesis chapter 3, we think back there, we will realize that Eve hearkened to the voice of the serpent, an animal. And she committed idolatry with that animal. She didn't listen to God's word. She and her husband, Adam, he committed the more self-conscious sin. Adam did not listen to God's word and submit to it. Rather, Adam bowed before an idol, an animal, and listened to its words. And so Romans chapter 1 says that they, professing to be wise, they became fools. This is talking about Adam and Eve and all of their descendants. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So these animals speak of idolatry primarily, and that's why they come up first, because thou shalt have no other gods before me is the primary idea. And eating these animals is the act of worship. They're sacramental laws. You either eat God's animals, the food that he gives you, or you eat at the table of demons. And these animals symbolize the table of demons, as we'll see. And so in Leviticus chapter 20, commenting on this, it says in Leviticus 20, 24, and 25, Hence I have said to you, you are to possess their land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land that flows with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples, and for that reason you are to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, and between the unclean bird and the clean. And you will not make yourselves detestable, so that I spit you out, by animal or bird, or by anything that swarms and creeps in the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean. Thus you are to be holy to me. So, these animals represent the idolatry of the nations, and to eat them is to become like the nations, and God will spit you out. Now, what makes an animal clean or unclean? Well, it's the specific things given us in Leviticus 11, and nothing else. And that's important. Some people have said, well, the unclean animals are carnivores. Well, that's not true of the fish. Fish are carnivores, and they're clean. Fish with scales and fins, they don't kill the other fish before they eat them. They kill them in the act of eating them. They eat their prey alive. They're carnivores, all right, but they're clean. And other speculations have come up about what makes animals clean or unclean. That they have a disgusting lifestyle. Pigs are unclean because they have a disgusting lifestyle. Well, I don't think pigs are probably any more disgusting than dogs. Dogs eat their own vomit. Dogs eat their own manure. Dogs go sniff each other's behinds all the time. I mean, you stop and look at dogs, the same dogs that you let into your house and that you pet and put on your lap. Those dogs are very, very disgusting. And yet we don't mind being around them. So those things are all cultural, and they don't have anything to do with this passage. As a matter of fact, two of these unclean animals, the eagle and the lion, which are unclean, are faces of the cherubim. And so these animals are not unclean as a whole or disgusting or revolting. It's got nothing to do with that. It has to do only with the specific detailed things given in Leviticus 11. And 
As regards the land animals, those specific detailed things are the curses that were put on the serpent. The serpent will crawl in the dust. And unclean animals are animals that do not wear shoes and thus crawl in the dust in some sense. It's that simple. And they have other characteristics as well. Now we've got to briefly run through this passage. If it's new to you, then you'll probably want to play this tape over and over again until you become familiar with it. But I'll run through it, and then if you have to listen to the tape again, just remember that you got your money's worth when you got these tapes. They were chock full of information, and you wanted to listen to them more than once. The first group of animals are the land animals, and they're the ones that are like the serpent, because the serpent is a land animal. To be clean, you have to have a hoof, wear shoes, and the hoof has to be split, and you have to chew the cud. What does the split hoof mean? Well, probably it means that as the animal comes in contact with its cursed environment, the dust of the ground, it makes a distinction. And that's a picture for us. As we go into the world and we come in contact with the world, we should have split hooves. We should make a distinction in terms of what we contact. Secondly, it has to chew the cud. That is, it has to apparently chew on its food a long time. And this has always been taken as a symbol for meditating on the law of God, and I believe that that's absolutely right. We could go through the Bible and see all the times where it talks about eating the word of God and taking it down into your belly and reflecting on it and meditating on it, and we would begin to see that it makes a lot of sense to say that clean animals are those that have shoes, And when they do come in contact with the cursed world, they make a distinction in terms of what they're doing. They have split hooves, and they also meditate on the word of God. Now, when we come to water creatures, verses 9 to 12, the rule is that the clean fish have fins and scales. Now, everything else does not have fins and scales, and that is detestable. That is, you're not to eat their flesh, you're to spit it out. If you think about it, you're to regard it as something to spit out. And they're unclean. Well, what's the issue here? Well, remember, when God made the world, he made three environments, the heavens above, the earth beneath, and the waters under the earth. And these three environments represent three different things. Now, the water under the earth or below the horizon of the land, lower than the land is the real meaning there, is the realm where people go when they die, and it's the realm of the demons. It's under the world. Symbolically, that's what the sea becomes. It's the turbulent Gentiles, those who are below and outside. Now, the clean animals in the water are those that are armored, that have scales. Goliath's armor is said to be scales. And in Ephesians chapter 6, the Christian is encouraged to take up the armor of God and be, as it were, a scaled fish as he travels around in the world. And I think that's the meaning here, that the righteous man, the clean animal, is the one who has the armor of God and thus travels purposefully through the world with his fins directing his motion. And the other animals that don't have this armor but just exist in the sea, they are in this environment, this cursed environment, without any protection, as it were, and without standing against it in any particular way, without being armored. They are unclean. Admittedly, there is not a whole lot to go on in interpreting this. Then we have an even worse case, verses 13 and 19, are the birds. And there's just a list of them here. Eagles, vultures, buzzards, kites, falcons, ravens, ostriches, owls, seagulls, different kinds of owls, pelican, stork, heron, hoopy, and bat. What's going on here? Well, it's hard to know what all these birds are. So that makes it hard. 
and no particular rule is given to distinguish them. But I suggest this to you. Think back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. We find the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now, you have darkness in the air, and you have the Spirit in the air, both hovering over the world. And in the Bible, the unclean birds are associated with demonic powers, and the clean birds are associated with the Spirit of God, or righteousness. The Spirit appeared in the form of a dove. But in Revelation, for instance, Revelation chapter 18, verse 2, Fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison of every unclean spirit, a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. And this is not the only verse we could point to, but we don't have much time as we make this survey. The unclean birds that fly through the air are like demons. It includes bats. You see, it's not talking about birds as such. It's talking about winged things that fly in the air. And these things represent the demonic powers of the air that hover in darkness. And the clean birds represent angels, winged angels, cherubim, and the Holy Spirit, heavenly powers that are good and on God's side. I think that if we really were able to study it, we'd find that at least most of these birds are nighttime birds. They're birds associated with the darkness. Certainly that's true of the owls. They're either associated with the darkness or the desert, outside, away from civilized life. And so either way, they're outside, they're in the realm where the demons are. In the Bible, the demons exist in the wilderness areas. It says when the demon is driven out of a man, he wanders in dry places. And so birds that are associated with the wilderness are associated with demons. Those that are associated with nighttime, our darkness hovering over the world, then become associated with demons. That's my best guess. Then in verses 20 to 23, we have the winged insects that swarm. Winged insects that walk on all fours are detestable to you. Why? Well, because they crawl around in the dirt even though they have wings. The only ones that are clean are the ones that hop. It says in verse 21, those that you may eat are those that have jointed legs that they may hop on the earth. Then it lists the locusts and crickets and grasshoppers. They hop around, and I think, again, the idea there is that though they have some contact with the ground, they don't swarm and crawl around in the dirt, and so they are clean. Then we move to some other things here. Verses 24 to 28 says that you become unclean if you touch one of the carcasses of an unclean animal. And it goes on to explain in verse 27 that unclean animals are those that walk on their paws that don't have shoes, that have their feet in contact with the ground. But if you touch their carcasses, you become unclean because that speaks of death. And of course, death is part of the curse, and so you get the curse on you when you touch these things. The Bible says that in Adam's sinned, death spread to all men. And in the Old Testament, we see death spreading. If you come in contact with something that's dead, then you become ceremonially unclean. It spreads onto you, and then you have to take care of it. You're unclean until evening, it says. What happens at evening? Well, two things. One, you have the evening sacrifice. It carries away the uncleanness. And the other thing that happens is that you have the beginning of a new day, and the old day is ended. Well, verses 29 to 31 introduce a new section that says that the swarming things that swarm around in the earth are unclean. They're all unclean, without exception. Moles, mice, lizards, geckos, crocodiles, lizards, sand reptiles, chameleons, and all the rest. 
whether they're lizards or mice or rodents or whatever they are, if they swarm around the ground, they're unclean. Of course, they're like the serpent. And then he goes on to say, in verses 32 to 38, that these things can get into your house, and they can get in and defile your house and defile the things that are in your house. And so, unlike the big animals that don't normally come into your house and cause trouble, these do. And if they come into your house and die, because you put poison out or had the house sprayed, then they defile the things they come in contact with. If they get onto a wooden article or clothing or sack or something, then you have to wash it. If they get into an earthenware vessel or come onto anything made of earthenware, it has to be broken. And the reason for that is that man is made of clay and these things represent man. So there are symbols of what would happen, what happens. The dead animal inside the clay pot represents Satan in the heart of a human being. And the breaking of the vessel represents the judgment that comes on a person for that. Well, we have to just zip on to say that even clean animals, if they're not sacrificed and just die by themselves, then their death will spread to you and you become unclean. That's verses 39 to 40. And then in summary, we have in verses 41 to 45 what this really all has to do with. Everything that swarms on the earth is detestable, not to be eaten. It crawls on its belly like the serpent. Whatever walks on all fours has many feet, swarming things. Don't render yourselves detestable with swarming things that swarm. And you will not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that crawl on the earth. See, the bottom line is the real unclean things, the things that swarm around in the dirt like the serpent, those are the things that make you unclean. Because I brought you up from the land of Egypt and you will be holy for I am holy. Remember the first of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord thy God that brought you out of the land of Egypt and you will have no other gods before me. This has to do with idolatry because the same language is used here in verse 45. All right, that's the unclean animals and the abominable food. Moving right along into chapter 12, we have the uncleanness from childbirth. Remember what happens next in Genesis chapter 3. After we pronounce the judgment on the serpent, then we have a statement to the woman that her distress in childbearing will be multiplied. Now, if we look at Leviticus chapter 12, it's talking about the distress associated with childbearing. Some have said, and it's an attractive idea, that the reason that the woman becomes unclean is because she gives birth to a baby that is dead in trespasses and sins. And that's true that the child is born dead in trespasses and sins, but that is not what makes the woman unclean. Rather, it states that she is unclean, just like in the days of her menstruation, she is unclean. She is unclean because of the blood that comes along with the baby. I suppose it's possible to imagine that if man hadn't fallen, the lubrication of childbearing, people would not have torn and there would not have been attendant bleeding. But at least that's the way it is now. And it's the bloody distress that accompanies childbirth that rendered the woman unclean in Israel. Now, first of all, we have the rule for the male child in verses 2 to 4. And the male child can be circumcised, and the result of that is that the purification period is cut in half. Instead of spending 14 days completely out of social contact with everybody, and then the remainder of the 80 days not being allowed to come into the congregation to worship, is cut in half with the circumcision of the male child on the eighth day. I think this also reminds me of the judgment that's given in Genesis chapter 3 where God says, I will multiply your distress and childbearing and your desire will be to your husband and he will rule over you. The supremacy of the male child over the female seems to be set out here or at least intimated in this passage. 
the male child rule is given first, and then the rule for the girl child in verse 5, the period of time is double. She's unclean for two weeks, like in menstruation, which means she can't have any social contact, and then she remains in blood of purification for 66 days, and she may not enter into the sanctuary. Then in verses 6 through 8, we have the purification rite. She brings a burnt offering and a purification offering. This defilement on her puts a mark on the altar, and it has to be washed off by the blood of the purification offering to clean the altar before she can be allowed to come into it so that God won't become angry. And then there's a burnt offering to take away the judgment. Now we come to leprosy. Leprosy in chapter 13. Leprosy is associated with sweat. In Second Chronicles chapter 26, Second Chronicles chapter 26, verses 16 and 19, we see this concerning King Uzziah. When King Uzziah became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. He entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they opposed Uzziah and said, Go out of the sanctuary. But Uzziah refused to do it. And then it says, Leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord. And then it says, Azariah saw that he was leprous on his forehead, and Azariah was a leper to that day. Now, what does God say to Adam? By the sweat of your brow, you will do your work. The high priest had a golden plate on his forehead to cover up that sweat so that God would not be offended. But Uzziah did not. And yet, when God judged Uzziah, he didn't put sweat on his brow, he put leprosy on his brow. Jesus Christ sweat blood on his brow in Gethsemane in order to cover for that judgment. So, in the Bible, leprosy is associated with the tabernacle, as we just saw, as a judgment that comes into the midst of the people because the tabernacle is in their midst, and it is associated with sweat. Now, This leprosy here is not modern leprosy. It is unknown what it is. It seems to be a cover term for any number of surface disorders. The actual Hebrew word is the word stricken, and it refers to a plague. And as we'll see, the cleansing of leprosy is like Passover. The blood is put on various places of the body. So that will be important to us. Also, if you look at the description of leprosy here, you'll find that it always involves the skin becoming dry and white and dead and the hair turning white because it's no longer alive. The follicles are no longer alive. And this is like the skin is turning to dust. And that's why, to me, leprosy is kind of a dusty sweat. And it goes right back to the judgment pronounced in Genesis 3 that you're made of dust, that you'll live in sweat and return to dust. Now, there are two rules for leprosy here in each one of these sections. If we were to read them, which we won't, we would find that in each case, the priest examines the person, a particular boil or a sore or something, and he will find that underneath the skin there seems to be a disease, and the hair is turning white, then that shows that there is a disease under the skin that is what the Bible is here calling leprosy, what our translations call leprosy. That's what we'll call it. And that makes a person unclean, and he has to be dealt with. The other possibility is that there is a spot, but there's nothing under the skin, but that spot seems to be spreading and growing. Then that also 
makes you unclean with leprosy. Now, I think both of those two things are symbolic. The disease under the skin points to the fact that man is corrupt on the inside. And now it's beginning to break out on his skin and break out and become visible. That corruption is becoming visible. Then the death that he carries in his heart is becoming visible. Then he becomes unclean and he has to be taken away from the presence of God so God won't see him. He's put outside the camp. The other thing is that there's some type of a disorder on the surface of his skin, but it's spreading. And that again symbolizes the fact that death and sin spread in the Old Testament. They spread from one person to another. And again, to avoid the eye of God, he is put outside the camp, both for his own protection and for the protection of the rest of the camp. Now there are different kinds of leprosy set out here. There's the new leprosy in verses 2 through 8. You could read that. The priest examines and he finds the bright spot on the skin. The hair is white. If it's deeper than the skin, then it's leprosy. If it's not, then the priest isolates him in his house and checks him seven days later. And if there's no change, then he's okay. But if it's gotten worse, then he has to be put outside the camp. So you have temporary isolation in the house. You have permanent exile outside the camp. But if there's nothing under the skin but the mark is spreading out, then he is also unclean and has to be put out. Then in verses 9 to 17, there is what's called the old leprosy. And here, whatever this disease is, we don't know what the disease is, but the condition, if it covers the entire man and does not seem to be under the skin, then the leper is clean. (laughs) And the reason is there's no place left for it to spread. These apparently were not terribly communicable diseases because a man could be just covered with this disease and still be clean and live in his home with his family and everything else. But whatever this skin disorder was, as long as it was spreading out, he was unclean. But once it completely covered him and it couldn't spread any further, then it stopped spreading. It wasn't malignant anymore in terms of spreading, and he was ceremonially clean. It may have still been sick, but he could come back into his home. But if it started to retreat and the raw flesh of a disease underneath the skin became apparent, then he would go back to being unclean until the disease had run its course. Then the third category is leprosy for boils. If a body has a boil on its skin and leprosy shows up, then he's unclean. And we're reminded of Job here, who had boils all over his skin and it dried up and he scraped himself. Sounds an awful lot like the same condition described here. And then leprosy might break out in a burn. If a man has a burn, verses 24 to 28, and there's probably some reason why each of these specific cases is taken up. We don't have time to go into it. The climax, however, is leprosy on the head and in the scalp. Remember, it's on the sweat of the brow particularly that the judgment against man is marked. And so the climax here is leprosy that can break out on the scalp, verses 29 to 37. Then we have, in verses 38 and 39, the possibility of spots all over your body that are not leprous because they don't seem to be spreading and they don't seem to have anything under the skin. But then again we move to the head. And we have additional information here about looking for leprosy on the head and on the forehead, which again reminds us that the basic idea here is the sweat of the brow. Well, in verses 45 to 46, we have the man cast out of the Garden of Eden, and that is what happened when Adam sinned. That's what followed upon the judgment of God, after God told him that he would be dust, and to dust he would return. And in his expulsion, I think we ought to notice this in verses 45 and 46, 
His clothes are torn, the hair of his head is uncovered, and he covers his mustache and cries, unclean, unclean. Now this has nothing to do with communication of disease. All three of these are marks of mourning. You tear your clothes when you mourn, you uncover and dishevel your hair of your head when you mourn, and if you study the cross-references in your Bible, you'll find that covering the mouth is a sign of mourning, not an attempt to prevent a mnemonic communication of disease. So this man is in a state of ceremonial death, and he is outside because of that. Death is not allowed in God's presence. Thus thou art, to dust thou shalt return. This man's skin is becoming dusty, and he is dead while he's still alive. Then we have what's called leprosy in garments in verses 47 to 59. The only thing I'll say here is that God's clothed Adam and Eve in skins, and even they can become corrupt. Then in chapter 14, we have the cleansing of the leper. How do you cleanse a leper? Well, let's be real clear on something. Cleansing is not healing. Cleansing is ceremonial. The leper has to be healed before he's going to be cleansed. Chapter 14 says, this is the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He'll be brought to the priest. The priest will go outside the camp and look him all over and see if he's still leprous. And if he's not, in other words, if he's already healed, then the priest cleanses him. How does he do that? Well, he takes two live birds and he takes a whole bunch of red material and he kills one bird over a pot and he dips the other bird in it and sends the bird away. And the idea here seems to be that the bird that flies away carries away the uncleanness of the leper. Now this is the same thing that happens on the Day of Atonement. In chapter 16, as we shall see, one animal is slain as a substitute for sins and the other animal the other goat is sent out into the wilderness to carry the sins away. And here the bird carries away the uncleanness into the open field. Now after he's been cleansed, then he has to make a sacrifice to the Lord. And one of the sacrifices is the reparation offering. This is given in verses 10 to 21. After eight days, the day of resurrection, he comes to the tabernacle and he makes his reparation offering and then he makes a sin offering to cleanse the sanctuary. And the blood of the reparation offering is put on his right ear and thumb and big toe. And oil is put on the same places. Now that's the same thing that was done to the priest when he was made a priest. And this reminds us that all the Israelites were priests. They were a nation of priests. And this man is once again being made a part of the nation of priests. We also said that the placing of oil on these parts of the body was like Passover. It was visible to God so God would not strike him with a plague anymore. Well, this is a man that's been healed from being struck by the plague of leprosy. And that is the language that is used in the chapter, being struck by leprosy. It's plague language. And so to be put under the blood here is the mark of Passover to be delivered from this plague and to be made a priest once again. Now, if he's too poor to bring all those sacrifices, then in verses 21 to 32, exceptions are made and he can bring a somewhat less expensive sacrifice. But he does have to bring that reparation offering because he has stolen from God in the sense that he has not been in God's presence and been away from his presence. And he has incurred a debt. All right. Now we have leprosy in houses. Adam and Eve were cast out of Eden. They lost their house. And we have it here in verses 33 to 57. This has to do with succession and the land that they're going to go live in, as we saw. Your personal garden can be defiled, and then 
you are cast out of it. And here it is, a leprosy can go into the house. The priest has to come and look, and if it's underneath the plaster in the house and seems to be spreading, then you've got to tear out the stones that are defiled and scrape all the plaster off and dump the plaster outside in an unclean place and replaster the house. Now this reminds me of what Job is doing. Job is scraping his skin. Uh, I think the house is like the human body in that respect. But it's also, you know, God's house becomes corrupted by our sins. It becomes defiled. And the purification offering had to be made to take care of that. And the same thing is happening here. A person's personal house could become defiled and it could be torn down. Well, if the leprosy breaks out again in the house, then you have to tear it all the way down. But if it's clean, well, then we take those two birds and we slaughter one and let the other one fly away and take the uncleanness away. Houses can also be defiled, and that means that the world can fall apart. Not only man can return to dust, but the world itself can be lost because of human sin. And so in summary, verses 54 to 57, we have the law for a mark of leprosy, even for a scale on the flesh or a leprous garment or a house. And this is to teach the people when they're unclean. Well, the final section are issues of flesh. Flesh here means the private parts. It means what the fig leaves covered up there in Genesis chapter 3. And it means that the union of man and woman is defiled. Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, following our sequence, Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. Well, here we find that that act of knowing is itself defiled through sin. And these forms of uncleanness are powerful and they spread to others. Again, we're in a succession, a spreading section. Childbearing is the connection. Death spreads to all men. And we have basically four sections here. And the very central verse in the chapter is verse 18. If a man lies with a woman so that there is a seminal omission, they shall both bathe in water and be unclean until evening. That is, any sexual intercourse makes you unclean until evening. It means you don't have sex during holy war. And that's why Uriah the Hittite refused to go down to Bathsheba when the ark was in the field. And also protects the foreign women from rape, you see, because you can't have sexual relations during wartime, during holy war. And in the Old Testament, you couldn't have sexual relations before you went to the tabernacle to worship because you were unclean. So... The act that was supposed to be, you know, the most consummate joy in human life, humanly speaking, apart from religion, is itself defiled because of sin. That's where man's sense of shame is located, in his private parts. That's why they're called private. That's why Adam and Eve covered that with fig leaves. They didn't cover their shoulders. They covered where their sense of shame was located, and it's defiled. Now, a male discharge this long-term, some type of discharge from his privates, makes him unclean. Anything that he sits upon becomes unclean because it comes near to that discharge. And anybody that he touches carries the uncleanness until evening. And when he comes off of it and finally this disease is over with, then he has to go for seven days and offer sacrifices to be atoned to the Lord. A short-term seminal emission issue from the private parts only means he's unclean until the evening, verses 16, 17, and 18. Now, the woman's laws are given in reverse order. Short-term discharges is actually the monthly period. That's discussed in 19 through 24. She is impure for seven days. That means that from seven days from the day she starts. There are some who have taken this to mean that she was unclean for seven days after her period came to an end. So for 14 days out of the month average, 
you weren't allowed to have physical relations. But that's a misinterpretation. The seven days count from the beginning of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches her is unclean till evening. Anything on which she lies will be unclean. Anyone who touches her bed is unclean till evening. And verse 24, if her husband actually lies with her so that her menstrual impurity is on him, he is unclean for seven days. And every bed on which he lies will be unclean. Now Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 forbid physical relations during menstruation. So what this means is some type of an accident. The husband, they make love and it turns out after it's over that, what do you know, she had just started her period and didn't know it. And so now he's unclean for seven days as well, accidentally. Now this question always comes up and I may as well answer it here. Are Christians in the New Testament allowed to have physical relations during the monthly period? And the answer is yes, these are ceremonial laws. They're not binding on us. There may be all kinds of other reasons why married people would choose not to do this, but there is no binding legislation from God on the subject in the New Testament. We are now clean, and there's nothing that makes us ceremonially unclean. And the monthly discharge is no longer makes us ceremonially unclean. And all of these laws have to do with not doing things that are unclean. So they're not binding on us. It's up to you, in other words, for whatever and whatever other factors you may wish to bring into consideration are fine. I'm certainly not going to comment on that. But in terms of the law of God, we are free from this legislation. Then we have the case of the woman who has a long-term discharge, and she is unclean for as long as that goes on, and for seven days afterwards, and then she has to bring sacrifices to be cleansed. Of course, there's a famous story of that in the Gospels, the woman who had had an issue for 12 years. And she came and touched Jesus, and what should have happened is that her uncleanness spread to him, but that's not what happened. Because in the New Testament, of course, things are changed, and power went out from Jesus and cleansed her. And that's the change. And that's why we're not under these laws anymore. The world is becoming clean. It's no longer uncleanness and death that have the power. Rather, it's Pentecost and life and cleansing that has the power. So, to refresh ourselves, these laws track Genesis 3 and the beginning of Genesis 4 in terms of the judgments. And that's what unclean means. It means things that are under the judgment of God, that speak of the judgment of God. Animals that are like the serpent or animals that are associated with the demonic realm one way or the other, that are used for idols, they are unclean. The woman's distress in childbearing makes her unclean. The man to have sweat become like dust and leprosy all over him is unclean. They can go into his garments and they can become unclean and make the skins that God clothed Adam and Eve with unclean. They can be defiled. His house can be defiled and he can lose it as he lost the Garden of Eden. And then there can be issues from his flesh because he committed spiritual adultery in the garden with the serpent. Therefore, anything related to the processes of lovemaking and childbearing is defiled until Jesus comes and cleanses us. I noticed that this has taken just about the entire length of the tape, and I'd originally planned to include Leviticus chapter 16, which belongs in this section, in this hour. But we don't have time to do it. Let me say briefly that the climax of this section is Leviticus 16, which tells us how atonement is made for Israel. All of these things that make people unclean put their mark on the tabernacle, and the tabernacle becomes unclean. And so you have to bring what kind of sacrifice? A purification offering. And blood is put on the altar for the sins of laymen and on the golden altar for the sins of priests. Now, on the Day of Atonement, we'll find that 
There are all kinds of things that escape notice during the year that people either conceal or forget to do something about or just don't do anything about. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, all of those uncleannesses are taken care of. And so we've looked at all the things that make you unclean and all the things that deface God's house, that put their equivalent symbolic mark on the two altars. And now we'll see in chapter 16 the ritual that's made once a year to cleanse all of these things once and for all and give Israel a new start. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.